Our passage uh, today is Psalm 42. If you can find your way uh, to Psalm 42 in your Bible. Uh, Last week, uh, we began a three-part series called Anxiety Attack. Uh, The purpose of the series is to learn uh, what God says in His Word about how to deal with the anxieties in our lives. Uh, What does God say that anxiety is? What does God say about how we get ourselves into patterns of anxious living? And what does God have to say about how God is the one who gets us out of those patterns of anxious living? And uh, we started the series last week in Philippians 4, uh, one of the classic passages in God's Word that speaks about this subject, uh, speaks about how uh, to respond to anxiety in a God-glorifying way. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to wrap up this series in 1 Peter chapter 5. Again, another classic passage in God's Word about these things. Today, however, we are in Psalm 42, and I hope you'll be able to see some important dots that are connecting through these three passages. And granted, it's only three passages in God's Word, but this is a consistent theme that we see throughout the Bible, that God's strategy for responding to anxiety is prayer. God's strategy for responding to anxiety is prayer. We saw that last week in Philippians 4. Be anxious about nothing. Pray about everything. I don't think I'm giving away too much to say that next week we're going to see it again in 1 Peter chapter 5. And we see it again here in this passage in Psalm 42. The title of today's message is A Prayer to the God of My Life. Psalm 42 tells us how to hope in God when the concerns of life are overwhelming. So let's read it together. You follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Father, for... For those in the room right now for whom Psalm 42 is the cry of their hearts, 
I pray, oh God, that you would teach us yet again that our hope is in you. For those, perhaps, for whom Psalm 42 is not the cry of our hearts right now, I pray, God, that you would teach us the very same lesson. So that when Psalm 42 is the cry of our hearts, we will know where to turn. I ask in Jesus' name and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Psalm 42 teaches us that God is my hope even when it doesn't feel like it. God is my hope even when it doesn't feel like it. And the good news of Psalm 42 is that the psalmist tells us how to hope in God when it's really difficult for us to see that hope. Last week, we began our series by defining anxiety like this. Anxiety is the fearful concern I feel when the burdens of life become greater than my ability to bear them. Anxiety is the fearful concern that I feel when the burdens of life become greater than my ability to bear them. That is Psalm 42. The burdens of life have become greater than the psalmist's ability to bear them. And yet, twice in Psalm 42, and again he'll say in Psalm 43, that he has confidence that his only source of hope is in God. How do you hope in God when the concerns of life are overwhelming? I'd like to show you uh, seven responses from this passage, but before we go there, I want to set the table by drawing your attention to a few key observations right here from Psalm 42. Notice this first. The emphasis of this psalm is on God. The emphasis of this psalm is on God. The emphasis of this psalm is not on the psalmist. And by extension, the emphasis of this psalm is not on you. It's not on me. The emphasis of this psalm is on God. The psalmist has not forgotten God. In spite of everything that he's going through, he has not turned away from God. In fact, he recognizes that God is his only chance of surviving whatever it is that he's going through. Thirteen times in this passage, he mentions God. In the moments of his deepest despair, he will not turn from God. That's observation number one. Number two. Psalm 42 is intensely painful and intimately personal. It is intensely painful and intimately personal. This psalm, I don't know if you noticed it as we read through it, but this psalm feels like an emotional roller coaster. One moment he's up, the next moment he's down. One moment he has perspective, the next moment it's gone. And that's the reality of it, isn't it? That's a little bit of how you feel when the burdens of life become too much for us to bear. But notice here that this psalm is also intimately personal. Through the 11 verses, he refers to himself and his experience at least 35 times. For example, he says, So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food. These things I remember as I pour out my soul to you, O God. And so on it goes. Like from the very beginning to the very end, the raw emotion of this psalmist is like bubbling at the surface. And then observation number three. 
He believes that hope is possible even though his soul is in deep turmoil. Notice this, verse 5, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Skip down to verse 11. He says the exact same thing again. Skip ahead to chapter 43 and verse 5. He says the exact same thing again. He believes that hope is possible even though he finds himself in the midst of deep turmoil. I mean, his life is a mess. To say that he's anxious would be something of an understatement. Like maybe he's even depressed but he believes in the midst of his circumstance that he still has hope. See, the problem here for the psalmist is that the fearful concern that he is feeling is magnified for him by the reality that it feels to him like God is distant and maybe even completely absent. He's disappointed that nothing in his life seems to be going the way that it should. He's consumed by the misery because he doesn't know how much longer he's going to feel the way that he feels right now. And I wonder if there's any of us in the room who can relate to that. Can anybody relate at all to that? Like, God, when is this going to be over? God, why do I feel like this? God, why can't I get out of this? God, when are you going to do something about this? God, how am I supposed to have hope when these fears, these concerns, these anxieties, this depression is so overwhelming for me? Where do I find hope? That is Psalm 42. And God uses the anxious concerns of this psalmist to teach us seven ways to glorify God with our anxiety. Seven things that we can do. God is my hope even when it doesn't feel like it. So how do I hope in God? Especially when I can't see that hope. Notice this verse, number one. He refuses to give up on God. He refuses to give up on God. Even before verse 1, notice the title right above verse 1 in your Bible. It says, To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. So the first thing to notice here is that this was given to the choir master. This was given to the one who would lead the singing in the temple. And he's saying, Give this to the people and have them sing this in their worship which is why he calls it a masculine. As, as best we know, a masculine is a musical term that indicated a word or a song of instruction or insight. And so understand that this is not just a song. This is a song that will teach you how to have hope in God when your concerns make it feel like you're being buried under their weight. That's what Psalm 42 is. Furthermore, he says that this is a masculine of the sons of Korah. Korah was, uh, if you remember your Old Testament history, Korah was one of the men who led a few hundred other people along with two other guys in a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Numbers chapter 16 says that the consequence was that Korah and these two other guys were swallowed up by the earth. That's a bad day. And somehow the sons of Korah survived. And it would seem out of their gratitude to God, they gave the rest of their lives to producing music and leading worship in the temple. In fact, it's possible that Psalm 42 is one of the sons of Korah taking an experience from David's life and recounting how David responds to the particular turmoil within his life. It could have been David when he was fleeing from his rebellious son Absalom. It it could have been David when he was running for his life from King Saul. We don't know exactly what the incident was. We don't know exactly who the psalmist is. But regardless of who wrote this, what we do know is that the first response we see here is that he refuses to give up on God. Verse 1, 
As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Like just try and just try and feel the emotion of what he's saying here. Interestingly, when a deer senses danger, it'll run full speed until it finds water. Uh, the deer is threatened in some way by something that's happening to it. It's trying to survive, and in its effort to survive, it starts running away from the circumstance that's making it afraid. So you take a pair of Christmas deer antlers, put them on their head, and that's you, right? That's me. That's our anxiety, isn't it? Like, that's, that's the situations that make us so afraid. Something happens, it makes us afraid, and the longer this goes on, the more energy that we spend trying to escape that difficult situation. The problem for the deer is that the physical strain of running so hard away from that circumstance causes the deer to have this insatiable thirst. All of a sudden, its mouth is really dry, its heart rate goes way up, and it's, it starts gasping, it starts panting, it starts heaving for breath, and it would seem that the only thing that is going to bring relief for that deer in the midst of that danger is to get to a stream and satisfy its thirst. That's what's going to calm them down. They need that flowing stream. And the deer knows that if it doesn't get to that flowing stream, it dies. If it doesn't get to that flowing stream, as verse 1 says, where the water is not stale, it's not dirty. Instead, the water is life-giving and it satisfies its thirst. In fact, when the deer gets to that flowing stream, it'll just plunge its entire head right into the water, just bury its head in the water and gulp all the water that it possibly can because that is what calms it down. And the psalmist says, just like the deer craves life-giving water in a fearful situation, so do I. Like right down to the core of who I am, right down to my soul, right down to the, the very epicenter of who I am. That's what I need. God, I know that I need you. I'm longing after you. I'm longing to get to you. So he says in verse 2, my soul thirsts for God. For the living God. He's essentially saying the same thing here again, except he clarifies, even if only for himself, that his hope is in the living God. In other words, my hope is not in some false God that is dead. My hope is not in some false God that can do nothing to help me in the midst of my problem. My hope is in the living God. My hope is in the God who is alive. My hope is in the God who is active. My hope is in the God who cares about the circumstance that I'm going through. And I'm just pleading to him with everything in my soul. God, I need you. I don't need anything else. I need you. The pursuit, notice this, the pursuit is God. Because he knows who God is. My soul pants for you, oh God. My soul pants for you, oh covenant maker. My soul pants for you, oh promise keeper. My soul is desperate for the one who has promised his eternal and his perfect love to me. Even if it feels to me right now like he is nowhere to be found. Don't give up on God. Notice here that the psalmist isn't even asking for God's provision. He's just asking for God. Like right now, his main concern is not how he's going to get out of this. 
His main concern is that he just wants to be able to feel that God will be close to him again. Just give me God. So he says at the end of verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? Literally, that means when shall I see the face of God again? Somehow he has been prevented from worshiping at the temple. And for a Jewish person, that would make it feel like there was something desperately missing because the temple was the physical place where people went to meet God. And for some reason, he can't do that right now. He, but he longs for that because he knows that the presence of God is the only thing that will satisfy his thirst. That is his flowing stream. That's the flowing stream of verse 1. Just get me into the presence of God. He just wants God. He doesn't want to go to the... He doesn't care about going to the temple so that other people can see him there. He doesn't care about that. All he cares about right now is just get me to the temple so that I can see God. That's what I want. That's what I need. I wonder sometimes how much of the anxiety that we carry around in our lives is because we're so much more concerned about the appearances we make before other people than we are about the appearances we make before God. Studies consistently show that teenagers especially are increasingly overwhelmed by social anxiety, largely because they never seem to be able to live up to the standards of their friends on social media, at least the standards that they think their friends have. Sometimes it's not even really clear what they think the standards are. They just think the standards are something, and it's not really that. But So they try, and they try, and they try to live up to that standard, and then they fail, and they fail, and they fail to live up to that standard, and it just leads to this vicious cycle of insecurity and self-loathing. And the reality is that that's not just a problem for teenagers. That's a problem for everybody. We have become so concerned about the number of likes that we get. And somewhere along the way, we have completely forgotten what it means to long to be in the presence of the living God. Somewhere, our hearts have become so distracted. Remember, that's that's kind of the word picture when we talk about anxiety, right? It's, it's like our hearts are being distracted. It's like that tug of war emotionally that's happening within our hearts, that it's going back and forth, and, and our hearts are just distracted. And, and somewhere along the way, our hearts have become so distracted that we're forgetting that the only flowing stream that exists is the one that is found in God's presence. The stream of your friend's approval will not satisfy you. The stream of believing in yourself and your ability to get through it will not satisfy you. Even the stream of escaping the difficult situation that you're in right now, that won't satisfy you either. The only thing that will satisfy you is the flowing stream that is found in the presence of God. I just need to be in God's presence. I don't need anything else. Just give me God. That's what he's going for. That's what brings us hope when it feels like hope is out of reach. He refuses to give up on God. Here's the second response. He cries out in desperation. 
Don't forget, this is intensely personal. He cries out in desperation, verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? I don't know if you've ever felt like this. Just try and put yourself in, in the sandals of the psalmist right now. He wants the flowing streams of verse 1, but all he has are the streaming tears of verse 3. Notice this has been going on uh, for some time for him. He says in verse 3, my tears have been my food. This has been going on for some time. The burdens of his life have become so difficult that it's taking an outward toll on him. He has no appetite. He either cannot eat or he will not eat. His only food are the tears that he cries, but he's become so desperate now as well that his physical appearance on the outside makes it look like he thinks that God has left him. And to make matters even worse, people are coming to him, maybe even his enemies, and they are saying to him, listen, we knew you before this happened, and we know how much you delight in your God, but now we look at you and physically, on the outside, you look as though you feel like you have been abandoned by God. They're asking him, where is your God? The burden never leaves him. Notice, it's with him day and night, all the day long. It's clutching him when he gets up in the morning, and by the time he goes to bed at night, it's suffocating him, and he cries out to God. Like, what do you do when you wake up in the morning, and it feels like all of these concerns have just drained you of your energy? Like you're just getting out of bed and you feel completely drained because you've been carrying these burdens for so long. And then by the time you lay your head on the pillow later that same night, you still feel like you're carrying the piano on your back. What do you do when that's your life? You cry out to God. And you'll notice as we make our way through the rest of this psalm that he makes it pretty clear that there is absolutely nothing eloquent about his cries to God. It is just raw, real, emotional cries of desperation to God. God, when is this going to be over? God, why am I going through this? God, I want you. He cries out in desperation. At the same time, I want you to see that his tears are mingled with this next response. Number three, he remembers how God was close to him in the past. He remembers how God was close to him in the past. Verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. That word remember in verse 4 has the idea of considering something with a sense of regret. It's almost like a lament. In other words, I'm thinking back on the way things used to be and I long for that again. One translation says, my heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. It's like he's saying, I I remember the times when I was shouting and singing the praises of God. I remember the times when it felt like God was so close to me. Like, why can't it just be like that again? Like, that's what I long for. That's what I want within my life. Like, friends, this is a key component to attacking anxiety for the glory of God within our lives. I have to remember the good things that God has been doing. I have to remember the times when God has filled my heart with genuine joy. I have to remember the times where it's felt like God has been so close to me that it's almost like I could reach out my hand and he would hold it. I just have to remember those things. I shared with you a little bit last week about 
one of the harder moments of my life. And I was sitting at the back of this room and I was overcome by something I had never experienced before, at least not like that. And the mysterious part of, of that experience um, was that leading up to it, I could very clearly see some of the things that God was doing around me. I could see God at work. I could see his hand. I could, I could see him moving in power. And, and the thing is, some of you would tell me stories about how you were sharing your faith in Christ with other people in your life, and, and God was bearing fruit from that, and I was encouraged by that, and, and people were getting saved around that time, and, and some people, in fact, who were getting saved around that time are part of our church now, and, and God was answering prayers around that time. Some of them were big prayers, some of them were smaller prayers, but he was working and he was answering prayers, and and God was doing so There were people getting baptized around that time, and, and there were even some people in that mix who were, uh, for them, like baptism was a huge step of faith that they had to take in God, and, and God was just answering prayers all around that. For me personally, aside from what I get to do here as a pastor, aside from, from anything to do with ministry or with church, if I can just speak as a person, I guess, I don't know how else to say that, but just speaking for me personally, like, I felt close to God. And then that happened. And, and you need to understand, there, there's a build-up to that. It doesn't just, like, happen like that. But all of that stuff is going on around me. And, and I was telling our elders um, after, after this was happening and everything that I was feeling and what I was going through and and I, I said to them, um, probably a couple of times, I said, I just need to remember the good things that God is doing. And I said to them, I need you to help me remember the good things that God is doing here. Like, I can't lose sight of that. I need you to keep these things in front of me. I need to remember the good things, the ways that I see God moving and, and the answers to prayer and everything. that I need to keep the good things in front of me. And, and I say that to you this morning, not to make me sound any better. That's totally not the point. I say that because this is what God is telling us to do. This is how we battle against the anxiety, the fear, the worry, the depression within our lives. We push it back by remembering remembering the good things that God has done and that he will continue to do. So listen, because of the perfect love of God and because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we as Christians need to be a people of relentless remembering. We have to keep these things in front of us over and over again. I need to remember the sure and certain promises of God to me. I need to remember that the cross is the perfect picture of God's great love for me. I need to remember, as the psalmist says here, I need to remember the ways that God has been close to me in the past, even if right now it doesn't feel like he's close to me at all. I need to keep these things in front of me, which I think is part of the reason for what he says next in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. How do I hope in God when the burdens of life are overwhelming? Notice this, response number four. He preaches to himself. He preaches to himself. As he describes it here, to be cast down is to feel despair. It's to feel as though you have no hope when you're surrounded by trouble. 
in much the same way to be in turmoil means that you're in this state of anxiety or distress. It's a picture of groaning loudly. I don't know if you've been in circumstances like that before where the burden just seems to be too much and, and you don't know how to describe it and you don't even know what to pray in the middle of it and, and you just cry. You just groan and, and the Spirit intercedes for you. And so he's pleading here. Notice, he's pleading with his soul, the very epicenter of who he is. And he's saying, soul, why do you feel like this? Like, look around you. There's so many good things that are happening, so many blessings all around us. Something's not adding up here. And isn't this the way that it goes when you're feeling like the burdens of life are too much for you to bear? And you don't know what else to do. And you get anxious and you get worried. Like, it doesn't make sense that I feel like this, but I do. And the plan of attack for the psalmist here is that he preaches the gospel to himself. So he says, hope in God. Like, notice this. He feels in this moment like he is in the pit of despair. And now he is preaching to himself and he is calling himself out of the pit. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So when the psalmist here speaks of hope, he's not just, he's not just looking for hope right in the middle of what he's going through. When, when he speaks of hope, he's looking ahead. He's looking forward. He's anticipating the soon arrival of someone who can bring resolution to a circumstance. So understand, when he says, come on, soul, hope in God, he's not talking about the power of positive thinking. Yeah, that's nowhere to be found in the Bible. He's not talking about the power of positive thinking because positive thinking puts all of the hope in yourself. He's not talking about the power of positive thinking. Instead, he's talking about, about the power of faith-filled believing because the power of faith-filled believing puts all of the hope in God. He's saying, come on, soul. Come on, soul. Hope in God. Come on, soul. This isn't the end. Come on, soul. Hope in God. He's saying, I don't know when God is going to come, and I don't know how God is going to come, but what I do know is that God is going to come. God, listen, even in the midst of your most difficult moments, even in the midst when the anxiety is pressing down on you and you're worried or you're fearful or whatever it may be, even in those moments, God is there. Let's be clear on that, okay? God is there. God is everywhere all the time. But part of what he's saying here is that when God shows his power in the midst of the circumstance that I am going through, he will yet again prove himself to be my salvation. He will prove himself to be the deliverer within my circumstance. And he will prove yet again that he is my God. He is my covenant keeper. He is my promise keeper. He is my God who loves me with an eternally perfect love. And he's saying here, when God reveals himself in that way, in the midst of this circumstance, my soul will rise up one more time and I will praise God for who he is. And I long for that day. Listen, nobody talks to you more than you do. Right? It's true, isn't it? And so the message that you preach to yourself is absolutely critical. Here's wisdom for handling our anxiety. If you allow your circumstance to preach to you, then you will be overcome by anxiety. 
But if you flip the table on that, and if you preach to your circumstance, and more importantly, when you preach the message of God's hope to your own soul, then even in the moments when your soul feels like it is cast down, even then our heads are lifted up. Even in the moments where it feels like your soul is cast down, even then our eyes are lifted up, our voices are lifted up. Even in the moments where it feels like our soul is cast down, even then our hope is renewed. Why? Because our hope is in God. Our hope is in the covenant maker. Our hope is in the promise keeper who loves us. As, listen, it's, it's your, approaching your circumstance, it's approaching your anxiety by preaching the gospel and saying, as long as my God is alive and he is sitting on the throne, then this thing is not done yet. This is not over yet. And when that day comes, when my God shows himself in the middle of my circumstance to be my salvation and to be my God, then that's going to be a glorious day because then my soul is going to rise up and praise his name. What you preach to yourself makes all the difference. Here's response number five. He acknowledges that God has allowed this grief to demonstrate his glory. Verse 6. The land of Jordan and Hermon and Mount Mazar. These are places that are far from Jerusalem where the temple was. They were far from where he wanted to be at that particular moment. Verse 7 says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Notice here that this is not a gentle experience. Roaring waterfalls, breakers, waves. He is describing a raging experience, almost as if he's just trying to keep his head above the water. But notice that all of these things here, he attributes to God. He says, these are God's waterfalls. He's praying this to God. These are your waterfalls, God. These are God's breakers. These are God's waves. God has brought him into this experience. Why? Apparently, if for no other reason, so that the psalmist can know the reality of verse 8. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. You'll remember back in verse 3, he described how all-consuming this grief is. It goes on day and night. And for as all-consuming as the struggle is, see this, verse 8, God commands his steadfast love. God commands his steadfast, that's a big word. God commands his steadfast love. In other words, there is no circumstance too deep into which God's enduring love cannot reach. There is no night that is too dark into which God's song cannot be sung. It's almost as though he's saying here, God's going to show me again at the exact moment that I need it that I am loved by him. He's going to command his love into that circumstance. And, and I'm going to know the blessing again of belonging to him so that no matter how deep the valley is that I go through, I am going to know in that moment because God commands his steadfast love to me that I am a child of the living God and he loves me. See, that's when we need to realize in the midst of our anxiety that our identity as followers of Jesus Christ is not wrapped up in a circumstance we can't control. It's wrapped up in the reality of God's steadfast love for you. 
verse 8, he says, And at night his song is with me. Think about it. Isn't this when we need the song of God in our minds the most? Anybody else know the struggle of this? I do. When you lay your head on the pillow at night, the room is dark, the room is quiet. You have way too much time to think about what's happening. That's when I need the song of God to fill my mind with the truth of God. Spring of 2013, um, it was May, maybe early June, and Stacy and I had been praying for a while about the possibility of planting a church. It turned out to be this church by God's grace. And um, the more that we prayed and went through a process, the more that we sensed that God was moving in a very certain direction, but there were also a couple of very big pieces at that particular point to this puzzle that if those pieces didn't somehow come together, there was potential for the whole thing to fall apart. And we were far enough into the process by this point that we were pretty excited about it. Um, we were looking forward to it, and, and uh, we really wanted it to happen. But again, we had these big pieces of the puzzle that were just kind of hanging over us, and it was causing a little bit of uncertainty, anxiety, worry, whole bunch of different things. And so one day at the end of, of the spring in 2013, I'm, I'm in our backyard and I'm cutting our grass and I've got my phone in my pocket and I'm listening to some music, got my earbuds in and, and all of a sudden on my playlist comes a song that God had used very powerfully through that particular stretch within our lives. We're actually going to sing it here in a few minutes. And, and so I'm in the backyard, I'm cutting the grass, just mindlessly cutting the grass, just walking back and forth, doing what you do when you cut the grass, and not even thinking about that, and, and I'm just thinking about everything else that's going on in our life right now, just weighing all the options, and how's this all going to come together, and praying that God would make a way, and, and all of a sudden, it's like this song comes on, and, and I'm so overcome by the truth of the song that is being sung at that moment that... I actually stopped cutting the grass. So now I'm just a guy in his backyard standing beside his lawnmower and, <laughs> and, and it's just me and the lawnmower and, and tears are streaming down my face and my nose is running. It's like an ugly cry, right? And, and so I'm, I'm, just stand, I'm just weeping because this song is reminding me over and over again of God's goodness and his faithfulness and no matter how this circumstance turns out, that I'm still loved by God. So I'm, I'm standing there in the backyard, I'm, I'm weeping, and I'm certain that if my neighbors saw any of what was going on, they'd be like, dude, you're cutting your grass. Like, come on. Like, what's wrong with you, right? But that's what I needed to be reminded of in that moment. I needed the song of God. I needed to be reminded that God is sovereign. He is always good. I needed the song of God in my heart. I needed to be reminded that his love is stronger than my fear. I needed to be reminded that his song is louder than my circumstance. And the song that he gave me becomes my prayer to him. When God commands his steadfast love to you in the midst of a circumstance that has spiraled out of your control, when God reminds you that you are loved by him, 
When God gives you that song in the night, when you lay your head on the pillow and God puts that truth in your mind, that's the moment that we stop. That's the moment we drop to our knees. That's the moment we stop driving our car. That's the moment we stop doing whatever it is that we're doing and we praise God. Thank you, God. That becomes the prayer of God, the prayer of God to the God of my life. God, thank you. I worship you, God, that I'm loved perfectly by you no matter how this goes. Thank you, God, that you're sovereign over this circumstance. This psalm here, Psalm 42, is a reminder that all of life is lived at the mercy of God and for the glory of God. This grief is for his glory. How do I have hope, especially when I can't see it? Response number six, he's honest with God. He's honest with God. Verse nine, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Can you feel this? Utter hopelessness. Paralyzing fear. He's just said in verse 8 how he knows that God loves him. God is with him. And now in verse 9, he's like, God, you're my rock. You're the one place of stability when the waterfalls and waves and breakers are crashing around me. And God, why have you forgotten me? God, why do I keep going on mourning? He's brutally honest with God. Did you know that you can ask your questions of God? You can ask your questions. You can ask him why you're going through what you're going through. You can ask him where he is in the middle of it. You can ask him when it's going to be over. And I know that... um, for some of you, that's probably a bit of a challenging thought. Like, I, I didn't know that I could ask God my questions and, and I can ask him anything, but, but maybe some of what we struggle with is how do I know that, that I can ask God questions? How do I make sure that I don't cross the line in what I ask him? Here's how. Look at your Bible. Verse 9. He says, I say to God, my rock. And then he launches into these questions. But notice, he says, I say to God, my rock, he knows that he belongs to God and God belongs to him. You can ask God anything, but never let go of God. Never let go of God. He may not give you an answer to your questions, much like it appears he didn't immediately answer the questions of Psalm 42, But for all of the questions that you ask God, never let go of God. In humility, in submission before him, you can ask your questions of him. You can ask him whatever you want. But understand, never let go of him. Look at how God is described just in the Psalms alone. And this isn't even a full list. Let's put it up on the screen here. And notice how God is described, who he is to us. God is my shield. He's my glory. It's the lifter of my head. God is my refuge. God is my strength. God is my fortress. God is my deliverer. God is my salvation. He is my stronghold, my support. The Lord is my shepherd. He is my light. He is the strength of my life. He is my saving refuge. He is my helper. He's my hiding place. 
God is my exceeding joy. He is my help in trouble. He is my defense, my shelter. He is my strong tower. He is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The Lord is my keeper and the Lord is my shade. Loved ones, this is your God. Never let go of him. Never let go of who he is because in Jesus Christ, he has promised that he will never let go of us. Final response, number seven. He keeps preaching to himself and then he waits for God. He says the same thing in verse 11 that he did in verse five. And then you'll notice here in verse 11 that the psalm is over comes to a pretty abrupt end. He's still in the middle of whatever it is that he's going through. And now he just waits for God. It's difficult to read this and um, not think of Jesus. Jesus knows what the psalmist was going through. Jesus knows what we go through. John chapter uh, 12. John 12. Jesus is getting close to the cross and Verse 27 says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, now my soul is troubled. Literally, that means unsettled. My soul is unsettled. It's actually the very same idea as what we see here in Psalm 42. He's saying, my soul is cast down. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Just think, Jesus is standing on the brink of carrying the greatest burden ever known. He's a matter of days, even hours, away from taking our sins upon himself and bearing the full weight of God's wrath in our place. Jesus knows what it means for our souls to be cast down. He knows better than any of us ever will what it's like for God's waterfalls and his breakers and his waves to come over him. Jesus knows what it is to carry a burden that feels too much for us to bear. In fact, a little while later, he'll be in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and the burden will be so great that he sweats drops of blood. He knows the agony and yet he also knows that the Father has a a greater purpose through which he will be glorified. See, in the moments of his greatest anxiety, Jesus paid the price for all the times that we sinfully clutch and grab our anxiety and don't let it go. Jesus paid the price for all the times that we look to other things to free us from our turmoil instead of looking to him. And that's why we can look to him because he has successfully, perfectly, and obediently gone after the Father. Only Jesus could do that because only Jesus has experienced what it's like for our souls to be cast down and yet he perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father in all the ways that we could not. So when we are cast down, only Jesus can lift us up. When we are in turmoil, Only Jesus can calm our tired souls. Oh, what a Savior. What a Savior indeed. And so no matter what your turmoil may be, no matter what it is that is causing you to be anxious, no matter what fearful concerns you have in your life right now, can I just echo what the psalmist has been preaching to us this morning? Hope in Him. Hope in God, for you shall again praise him, your salvation and your God.